This New America NYC event was recorded on May 20th, 2015, and is titled Less Than 9 to 5, Part-Time Workers and the Policies to Help Them, and features Stephen Greenhouse, Ann Boger, Rick McGahee, Sade Gaber-Sidasi, and David Gray. We know that part-time workers, as a, as a subset of the American workforce, are often uh, overlooked. We think about a population of roughly 27 million part-time workers with uh, 7 million or so who are involuntarily uh, working part-time and need more hours. And in the context of the economic recovery, which has been going on obviously for, uh, for a while, uh, we see an unemployment rate of 5.4% of in the May uh, report, uh, but yet when you include uh, folks who are not just unemployed but who are discouraged or those working part-time, it's roughly double that. And the rate of improvement is across the board, but seems, things seem to be improving more slowly for those uh, who are working uh, part-time. So that ratio hasn't fallen as, as quickly. And so you've got a lot of discouraged workers or workers who are working more hours than they would like or need. Uh, part-time work can be very helpful for, for older workers or those with childcare, but for, uh, for those who are, are supporting a family, uh, those who are struggling, uh, more needs to be done. And this is a great time to be gathering in order to have this conversation, uh, particularly in the context of, of wages, as we'll talk about uh, tonight, as uh, different organizing campaigns and others, uh, looking at the McDonald's shareholder meeting uh, tomorrow, and Los Angeles voting yesterday on its own uh, wage uh, law, and uh, New York Wage Board meeting today, as they consider their own policies in this, in this jurisdiction, this state, uh, for wages. And so to discuss this and other uh, topics uh, for workers and how to help them, we are so grateful that you are here, uh, grateful to Annie E. Casey Foundation for its inspiration and for all those who will listen uh, to this as we broadcast and podcast it. Uh, but I'd like to give thanks in particular uh, uh, for uh, Sade uh, Gebrselassie. Uh, uh, Sade uh, is, the, uh, is a senior staff attorney at the National Employment uh, Law Project. Thank you, Sade. Uh, Ann Boger, who's the Director of Governmental Affairs and Public Policy at the, at the Freelancers Union. Uh, Stephen Greenhouse, uh, who's a uh, former labor reporter at the New York Times and the author of Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker. And, uh, and Rick McGahey, who's a professor of professional practice uh, and Director of Environmental Policy and Sustainability at the New School. So let me start, if I could, by turning to uh, Rick and just asking if you would just to talk about uh, why are things so hard for part-time workers and really in the context of workers uh, in general? What's going on that you might share that might frame our discussion tonight? Right. So why is an environmental guy talking to you? David and I actually oh. both had the same job at different times in the uh, United States Department of Labor as Assistant Secretaries for Policy. So I'm primarily a labor economist on it. So I want to, I want to give you a, a pithy quote from a really smart economist. He said, the outstanding fault of the economic society in which we live are two. That's its failure to provide for full employment and its arbitrary and inequitable distribution of wealth and incomes. That's a smart economist, right? That's John Maynard Keynes almost 80 years ago in the general theory. So what's wrong with the economy for part-time? We'll dig into the part-time specificity, but for me, I'm kind of an unreconstructed Keynesian. We have a weak economy. David hit on some of the numbers. We are now 70 months into the recovery. The average post-World War II recovery is about 48 months. We're way past the, uh, the peak date of what we would think would still be good, but we, it took us six and a half years to get the jobs back that we lost in the recession just to get the same number of jobs back. 
So what's affecting part-time workers, and it, there's a lot of things affecting them, and we're, as I say, we'll do more specifically, but I really want to emphasize this overall context of just a lack of demand. <coughs> we have not much demand, uh, and you see it reflected in the unemployment numbers. Uh, you see it reflected in our historically low labor force participation. That's everyone who's either got a job or looking for a job. It's the lowest it's been since 1978, flattened out. There, that's not all demand-driven, but that's a big piece of the story. Uh, and, and so the, we hear sometimes kind of happy talk about the part-time, the gig economy. It's this wonderful thing. Technology is doing it. And then if you've turned the page the next day, the paper will say, be terrified in the gig economy. Technology and robots are going to take all your jobs away. Um, I see those as, uh, I, I'm not as big a believer in the robot threat story, because I want to come back to, or at least I don't know if it's true or not, with, this, with these weak economic numbers. If we get 4% unemployment, then we could find out how threatening the robots are to us. And let me just, and let me just uh, build on, on perhaps where um, one of the threads uh, that Rick uh, lifted up, which is uh, thinking about the part-time workforce, uh, and some are fans and some are, are, are foes when it comes to uh, uh, part-time uh, part work. And, and the question, uh, perhaps, does, does everybody, uh, should everybody, is everyone destined to have a full-time job? Does everyone need a full-time job? Or are some of the shifts uh, in, in, in personal entrepreneurship so to speak, as it comes, um, as it relates to job, uh, a good thing for some workers. Um, uh, how does that interplay uh, affect uh, both individuals and the economy generally of the pros and cons of, of part-time work? Would you? Sure. Um, I think it's very complex. And the increase in part-time work, when looked at just in comparison to full-time numbers, maybe isn't telling the whole story because... Um, we see an increasing rise in the number of people who identify as freelancers or people who work in independent and alternative modes, which might mean having a part-time job and three other things that they do at the same time. It might mean having a full-time job that's still not making ends meet, and so you're moonlighting on top of that, maybe hoping to turn that into something that can become your career, maybe, maybe just adding to the income that you, that you need. Um, and so the, to look only at part-time versus full-time, to me, misses some of the story because what we're seeing is that the era of sort of big work or the, uh, and manufacturing kind of jobs have shifted away to kinds of work that can be done in many different structured ways. Some of that is being an employee, maybe short-term, maybe part-time. And others may work just as well as an independent contractor or uh, as a micro business. And one of the things that's really interesting, you know, Freelancers Union um, represents members and independent workers across many, many different fields. And one of the things we see is a lot of folks who we've kind of described as diversified workers, meaning that they're not just an employee or just a small business owner, but they actually... Um, are getting revenue from many different kinds of work simultaneously. Sometimes because uh, that's the work that's available and sometimes because they um, are able through those different types of work that they're doing to diversify their income stream. In some cases, feeling more secure having that diversity than they would with one full-time job that could be gone at a moment's notice. And so I've, I've 
what we're seeing is just the level of complexity, um, but also some optimism to, to your question about, you know, is it always bad or good? Um, certainly, there are many folks who would like more work. We're also seeing um, from the younger generation a real optimism in being able to strike out on their own and have variety in the kind of work that they do rather than have one thing that they do all day long. So today, let me let me um, ask you a little bit about the uh, the, sh the shift in, in the, that some have noticed in the overall um, workforce, and just ask you if you've noticed uh, that that as an economy we are are, are shifting uh, more towards uh, low wage or subcontracting or or precarious work uh, generally, and, and and maybe uh, if if if. Uh, you, you might link some of the, the questions of part-time work to some of the wage sure. issues that we see going on uh, around us that I mentioned earlier and some of the organizing trends that you've seen. Uh, uh, why are our wage issues perhaps so important to this population? Sure, sure. Well, I think, um, and this goes to your question about what's what's happening with the part-time workforce. Um, like, like Anne said, it's not a monolithic workforce. And one would think looking at you know the stories and just everything that we read about part-time workers over the last couple of years that you know the rates of involuntary part-time work people that want full-time hours but can't get them have increased but in fact if you look over time the rate of involuntary part-time work has actually been fairly stable except for you know periods of recession where of course it's going to go up just because, you know but that's just because of the recession what is changing and i think what why there is so much focus on involuntary part-time and the problem of part-time workers is that people are starting to look at what are the conditions that part-time workers are experiencing and are those conditions changing? And so that's where we're seeing a lot of the organizing and the policy solutions. So for example, where are rates of involuntary part-time much higher? And so we see that while overall in the workforce, the rate of involuntary part-time is 5%, in the retail industry, it's 9%. So it's almost double. We see it higher among African-Americans, Latinos, women, you know, typical what what you would expect just as wages are lower. People are looking at, well, is, is the penalty worse for working part-time? You know, we have always had this part-time parity issue where, you know, you work the same job, but if you work part-time, you get less hourly pay for doing the same work. You, you don't have access to benefits. Is that changing? And then I think the last thing is, is it more precarious to be a part-time worker? You know, so the just-in-time scheduling issues that we've been reading about that, you know, St Steve has written about, um, you know, the, the on-call shifts and not knowing what your schedule is, are those things increasing? And so looking at that, people are saying, yes, actually, it's harder to be a part-time worker than it was, you know, decades ago. And so the organizing that's been happening around wages, around fast food, you know, that's linking the overall, it's not just about wages, right? Because what good is a $20 an hour minimum wage if you only have five hours of work a week? And so I think that type of linking together is what's prompting some of the organizing around not just wages, but hours. Mm. Thank you, Sadeh. If I, Stephen, could turn to you, and, and uh, since Sadeh since is, is linked uh, uh, to one of uh, some of your articles, to ask you a little more uh, to, to, to expand upon um, what we heard about scheduling and to talk a little bit about um, some of your work in that area and, and you know, why has, has scheduling uh, you know, volatile scheduling becomes so popular and, and, and the interplay between employer and employee decisions as it impacts part-time workers. So as, as uh, the other panelists said, you know, uh, part-time work is a mixed bag. A lot of people are happy 
to do part-time work. You know, students want to pick up a few extra hours, you know, of work to get some spending money. Semi-retirees want to work 10 or 15 hours of work in, in, tar in, in Target or, or, or Costco or wherever to supplement their Social Security. Um, but so about what, two thirds, three quarters of part-time workers, you know, voluntary, and about one third are involuntary. But I think what we're seeing in, in part-time work is there are all the, you know, um, it's become far more irregular. And I think even for, for voluntary part-timers, there are more complaints about how they're being treated. And we're seeing more workers who might work 25 hours one week and 10 hours the next week and 30 hours the next week and five hours the next week. And that makes life hell because it's extremely hard to plan your finances. It's extremely hard to plan childcare. It's extremely hard to plan, you know, to try to go to school when, when your schedule is jumping around so much. And, and, and my sense is this grows out of two, maybe three trends. One is you know, there's this far more sophisticated software. So a, a store with maybe 200 workers might say, well, we need you know, 50 workers on that shift. And you know, uh, you know, Jamie knows how to do the forklift. And these three are great as cashiers. And this person knows you know, how to stock beauty aids. And they, and, and, uh, they put together, and, and it's very hard to, you know, for a manager without a computer, it's very hard to do that, you know, by, by, you know, by, to pencil it all in. And now they have this very sophisticated software that does it all for you and, and, and spits it out. And a big change in recent years is that uh, a lot of retailers and, and, and restaurateurs are trying to tie much more closely the amount of sales per hour with how many workers they need per hour. So uh, I, I wrote about this uh, uh, worker in, in Milwaukee who worked at Popeyes. And she, Mary Coleman, um, I think she's about 60, 65 years old, she took bus an hour to go to work. She shows up at a Popeyes, you know, she paid the bus fare and she gets there and her boss says, sorry, we don't need you today. You know, business is slow. So, she, you know, so she just has to turn around and head home without any pay. And, and I, so on one hand, we have this effort to more closely tie the amount of labor needed with, with you know, how sales are going. And the other trend is basically unions are growing weaker Worker voice, so to speak, is growing weaker. And companies, I think, feel more freedom to schedule workers however they want. So we see these, some really egregious practices, like you know, some businesses consistently give workers only two days advance notice of their schedule for the next week. Or you know, um, I, I interviewed this worker here in New York uh, who said she was scheduled one regular workday a week and she had to, you know, wake up in the morning and call. She was on call the four other days and she had to call up first thing in the morning to see whether they wanted her. And another um, practice that I find extremely disturbing, and when I tell people about it, they can't believe it is, so let's say you're working at a Walmart or a Target and you're given 15 hours. And you say, this is enough for me to support myself and my family. I need a second job. So you go to your boss and say, can, you, can we carve out Thursday, Friday, Saturday so I can try to get a second job? And they'll say, you're not giving us 24-hour availability. We need 24-hour availability. You have to be available to work you know, 20, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the fact that you go and say, well, carve out Thursday, Friday, Saturday so I can have, look for another job, then they'll reduce the hours you have because they'll say, you're not making yourself available enough. And uh, so a lot of people say, you know, screw that. I'm not even going to look for a second job because I just end up with fewer hours on my, on my first job. 
Let's stay with this. I have other questions are coming to mind too, but I see nodding heads from other panelists. And just let's stay with the scheduling uh, question just to see if, if anyone else wants to jump in and talk at all about um, anything that comes to mind uh, on the issue of scheduling for, um, for part-time workers. Rick? Yeah, so, so these firms for a while, and I think the software probably is accelerating it quite a bit, but people know the phrase just-in-time inventory. I mean, firms for years have been pushing logistics to do this this way. They don't want to carry big stocks of parts, but we'll get them to you the next day. Uh, and so computer, they first did it with physical stuff, inventory, and now they're doing it with people, right? Because to some extent, it's just all cost to them, right? They want to minimize cost for it. They, and the software does, I think, give them the ability to control it. So we used to have shape-ups, right, at the, on the docks. There's always been attempts to control how to minimize the amount of labor from the firm's standpoint. And it doesn't mean they're bad, awful people. They may be, but it's just the firm wants to minimize its cost, right? So it's trying to get as few, trying to pay as few workers for as much revenue as it can get. So I think the, the technology is, is astonishing in a way that it can do that. But the same thing, they, they've been pioneering it for 20 years in this just-in-time in physical inventory. It's hard for us to think of ourselves or workers as inventory, but uh, from the point of view of the firm, it is. In, in, in one of the wage theft lawsuits against McDonald's out of California, some workers said that you know, during the breakfast hour, if business was slower than anticipated, they'd tell one or two workers, clock out, we no longer need you because the ratio mm -hmm. of sales to number of employees justifies your clocking out. Mm -hmm. But don't leave the building, you know, sit around twiddling your thumbs yeah. Yeah. Pay, yeah. for two hours. Yeah. And then when things get busy again around lunchtime, then they allow you to yeah. come back on. They tried this in Las Vegas, but the Las Vegas, at least the big hotels, the workers are unionized and they couldn't do it. But they'll, they'll take another run at it. But uh, the, again, this you've got to have, the, there's not, I mean, if you're an individual trying to cope with this stuff, you're in bad shape, right? It's just very hard. For, there is, particularly with this slack labor market, there's always someone else they can get to come in uh, for you, so you're threatened by it. Yeah. Let's, let's build on that. Were you going to jump in? Well, I was going to say the, the example that Steve gave yeah. of the workers that are told, like, just go out and wait in the parking lot, and when business gets faster, we'll bring you back in. There are, you know, there are a lot of states where, so California is a great place because, well, California has decent laws on the on the issue, but I think the problem and one of the things that some of the campaigns are trying to address, you know, to deal with these issues is that a lot of, you know, so in New York, for example, if you're called into a retail store and, or into a store and you go in and they say, actually, we don't need you um, and they send you home, you're actually entitled to four hours pay at the minimum wage, even if you didn't work those hours. It's called a reporting to work requirement. A few states have it. It's not great and it's rarely enforced, but it's meant to address the situation where your employer requires you to be available to work and just doesn't pay you because you have made, you don't, you have changed your life around. You've maybe arranged for childcare, you've foregone a second job, you've changed your classes. And so that recognizes that. The problem is that we're in the 21st century where an employer can get in touch with you through email, through text, so many different ways. And so they can say, look, we never asked you to report to work. We called you and said that you didn't need to come in. But you're like, well, I still made the same thing. I still rearranged childcare. I still forget, foregone a second job. I still, you know, didn't go to school that day. And so it's the same effect. And so one of the things that some of these campaigns that are really popping up and are really exciting are trying to deal with is how do we change these, you know, somewhat antiquated reporting pay laws to deal with the 21st century economy and the way that employers now typically relate to their workers. 
Let, let's stay with the, um, the organizing uh, point, if we could, for a moment. There's a lot of interesting things, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, as you, as, as you in, this, in this room know, going on with, with organizing this week as it relates to wages, but a lot of, of challenge uh, from, from a macro sense in terms of the impact of the decline of unions, perhaps, on, uh, on, on wages. So let me start with Anne, as I think the representative of, of the only union here, right? I mean, you're, yeah. you, you, so, uh, and, and maybe all four of us, uh, five, we, we may have something to, to, to share generally on our impressions of, of Fight for 15 and other organizing campaigns going on right now and what uh, the relative power uh, might say. But Anne, maybe start with you and just talk about either your experience with uh, the, the population you're most involved with and yep. the value of collective uh, involvement uh, for the benefit of workers, or and, and how you see that perhaps relating to the other trends generally within within uh, organizing for workers. Absolutely, I was just struck listening to the other panelists about how important it is to continue to think and evolve the way in which we pull together the the collective action and knowledge and experience of workers in these different circumstances, because in uh, with labor as available as it is, um, with the role of the traditional labor um, continuing to evolve to meet these different circumstances, um, you know, freelancers union is uh, is a labor organization, um, but we are combining uh, workers who may fit into a, a traditional employee definition and also those who fall just outside of it. Um, because they're independent contractors, because they are diversified workers, because they move from place to place. And so they, it's hard to uh, organize in a, in, a, in a more traditional way a workforce that's constantly mobile and moving around. And so what I think that gives us is a real opportunity to think about how these challenges, challenges over scheduling, challenges over episodic income, challenges over access to benefits, because part-time workers and freelancers often fall outside the traditional structures for access to benefits. How can we pull these people together, um, either within an industry, such as within the retail industry, or across industries, which is a lot of what we try to do at Freelancers Union, to say, we're having really common experiences across the board, and, and if we pull, if we all try to tackle these challenges as individuals, we're not gonna get very far, but if we can pull together to know where we're having shared experience, to know where we're having challenges um, across industries and deeper within, we have an opportunity to think about what are the systems that we need. Are there um, enforcement that we need for existing rules that nobody pays attention to, or updating them to make sense to the new, the new economy, the new way of working, or the new technology that we have underlying it? Or are there opportunities where, you know what, we used to look to our employer for uh, this particular benefit or that, but I change employers so often, whether by choice or by style, um, you know, choice or not, that I'd rather have a benefit that I can hold on to that takes me from, that I can take with me from place to place rather than the other way around, which might involve um, pooling together resources amongst workers to start their own programs, which is often an approach that Freelancers Union takes. Uh, and so absolutely none of those things can be accomplished if we allow uh, the workforce to feel too atomized and too separate from one another. Let's 
Stephen, I know you, you, you recently been in Chicago and seen some of the, the fun there. Well, before, before we get to Fight for 15. So you know, we've been talking about what some people call volatile schedule, on-call schedule, erratic schedule, herky-jerky schedule. Mm -hmm. And this was really going on you know, in manufacturing, you know, just in time, workers. But uh, you know, Carrie Gleason, who was founder of this group, Retail Action Project, and now we're the Center for uh, Popular Democracy, says what's going on is that employers rather than you know, bearing the burden of having too many workers in a slack period in the afternoon, now you know, shift the risk, shift the burden on, onto, onto the workers, and that's true. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're, you know, many companies, especially retailers and, and restaurant companies, would like with a vengeance, you know, using lots and lots of volatile schedule, and there was very little pushback. And then you know, there's this you know, professor at uh, University of Chicago School of Social Work, Susan Lambert, and her colleague, uh, Julia Henley, you know, they really did landmark research about part-time workers and volatile scheduling. I just was happy to talk to her one day about something else, and she talked talk my ear off, and then this became a big story. And parallel to that, Carrie at the Retail Action Project, uh, you know, did this big study that showed that, what, you know, 50% of New York City retail workers work part-time, 10%, uh, like, only 10% of those say that their work schedules are, are consistent week to week. And you know, between some of the stories you know, we wrote in the New York Times and my colleague Jody Cantor wrote this amazing story about this you know, part-time worker at, at the uh, Starbucks Star down in San Diego, where one, like one July 3rd, she had to work till like 11 p.m. And then she had to mm -hmm. be back the next morning at 4 a.m. Clopening. Clopening. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it was good that she wrote about a liberal company with a very image-conscious uh, CEO, Howard Schultz, because, you know, he, you know, uh, so, so there's been this movement now that, that's pushing back, you know, led by the Center for Popular Democracy and Susan Lambert and Julia Henley are like providing a lot of the brain power for it. And now we're seeing things like, you know, the San Francisco uh, Retail Workers Bill of Rights, which, said, which requires two weeks advance notice uh, for, for your schedule. And if, the, if your employer changes your schedule with less than a week notice, they have to pay you an hour, and with less than 24 hours notice, they have to pay you an extra two hours. And if they're part-time worker, if they're a lot of part-time workers and they want to hire more people, before they hire more people, they have to offer the additional hours to the part-time workers because so many part... So there is this pushback, you know, and, and it's taking many, many different forms, and maybe we'll discuss that more later. Um, Fight for 15, uh, you know, as you still, um, there's this big movement to achieve $15. Another big issue, one that you're working very hard on is David is paid sick days. And I think now we're seeing this uh, uh, fair work week, you know, fair work week uh, is now coming on. It's like a third big worker issue that's being pushed across the country. Mm -hmm. So David, can yeah. I? Yeah. Please. Yeah. So I, I think Stephen's right. I mean, when I said, uh, Voice and unions, that would be great, but private sector unions are now 7% of the, will cover 7% of the workforce and falling. So as much as I would want them, and I think there should still be efforts to keep reviving that, I do think the people are pointing out what else is going on, and it's using the ballot box. It's using laws, both to attempt to get enforcement and to pass new laws. I don't think it's accidental, actually, that it's in cities where this is happening. The federal government's not able to enforce much of this, that historically uh, uh, regulation and uh, of a lot of these laws has fallen to the states. Most state governments don't want to do it. And so I think the place where actually you're going to see, where you're seeing it now, uh, and where you're going to see more of it is, is 
cities. I think that's the way we're going to get this experimentation, whether it's minimum wage, all the things that folks have talked about have been broader kind of urban organizing things. And just to show that it's, I think it's right that we're focusing particularly on the marginal low-paid workers, but uh, Professor Lambert or myself are in an industry, I was looking at what industries have lots of part-time workers and it's construction and it's agriculture and it's, I want to make sure I get the numbers right, uh, over 50% of all university faculty now yeah. hold part-time appointments. Um, and yeah. non-tenure track jobs, which can be full-time, but most of them aren't, are now over 75% of all appointments in American higher education are non-tenure track. I mean, so that, and that, so this is now on, on, on the, I'm kind of arguing against myself, this is like, this is really spreading in lots of different industries yeah. uh, in this way. And then I think yeah. back to Anne's point, like, rather than thinking it only is a problem of the McDonald's workers and that, it's, it's our problem too. I guess I'd say the other thing about the, the enforcement thing is really, right, there are a lot of laws out there. A lot of, uh, there are people who legitimately want to be tended on your nose. There are a lot of them who are misclassified. They're not, there's a constant battle with employers to classify workers correctly and not tell people, oh, you're a consultant and you're sitting next to somebody doing the exact same job that they're doing and they're a full-time employee. So that, uh, again, where we get the political will to do a lot of this, I think, is a big question. I, for me, it's these city movements are hopeful yeah. Uh, places to begin trying to build that and maybe can start linking up and, and spreading it. Well, on the university faculty work, I mean, the last uh, fight for 15 strikes that happened on April 15th, you saw adjunct faculty join, and it was because, you know, I think the average uh, pay that you get per course is something like $2,700 per course, and you're doing three or four courses maybe, and Berkeley put out a study saying that a fourth of adjunct faculty have to rely on public assistance to make ends meet, which mm -hmm. is a fourth, yeah, and and you know these are folks with MAs and PhDs that probably have enormous student debt, which is a whole other issue. Um, and so I think the fight for fifteen. I mean, it's been like like just to go back to that a little bit. You know, there was when those first you know 150, 200 workers went on strike November two thousand twelve in New York City, and they were saying fifteen dollars an hour and a union. And I and I don't want to forget the union part, but when they were saying fifteen dollars an hour, people were like, that is crazy. Mm -hmm that work isn't worth $15 an hour. It's never going to happen, like, you know, whatever. And it is actually happening. And, I and I and you know, even, like, liberals were saying that. And even, I mean, even, I mean, a lot of people were saying that, right? And, like, you know, yesterday L.A. passed a $15 an hour minimum wage that's going to benefit 600,000 workers by a 14-to-1 vote. And I think um, I absolutely agree that cities are the place where this is going to happen. And too bad more cities don't have the power to do it. There are actually very few states that allow mm -hmm. cities yes. to raise the minimum right. wage on and their own. And they're cutting away those powers. And the they're cutting away those. Away those exactly. And that's like one of the secret right wing things that nobody's talking about, but is a real threat to progressive politics and democracy. Um, is not letting you know cities do what they need to do to for the health and safety and welfare of their citizens. So like New York City, we can't do it on our own. We have to wait for Governor Cuomo to do it or pretend to do it. Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, but there, there might there might be this interesting counter reactions to like all these Democratic you know very blue cities mm -hmm. are pushing higher minimum wage. Yeah. and Cuomo is probably going to push through through the wage board thirteen dollars, fifteen dollars. I think at some point some Republicans are going to say. Do we really want the Democrats to get all the credit for right, this? Right. You know, as long as it's going to happen anyway, we might as well get on board. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, yeah. uh, as you're saying, you know, so unions have grown much weaker, and Washington really is paralyzed. And we're seeing uh, Seattle, San Francisco, uh, LA now pass the $15 minimum wage. 
And with the, you know, the, you know the, this push, this campaign involving part-time workers and volatile scheduling, you know, Carrie Gleason will say, you know, there's no way, and George Miller introduced legislation, you know, uh, and they know that there's very little chance anything's going to happen in the federal government. But I, I, and this happened, as you're saying, with the $15 fight. At first, people thought, two and a half years ago, they thought, this is pie in the sky. Mm -hmm. But they, they wanted to create a serious discussion about it, and although people yeah. thought it was, you know, a, a, you know, eight bridges too far at yeah. first. Now, you know, whoever thought LA would, would pass this so quickly. And I think there's the same uh, effort now with issues like, uh, you know, having states and cities require businesses to you know, create, give two or three weeks advance notice on mm -hmm. scheduling, you know, or, or, or paid sick days. Paid you, sick know, you know, you know, eight, eight, ten years ago, a lot of people thought that you know. How could anyone think paid sick days is crazy? But a lot of people, you know. You know uh, so I, when I was researching this story the other day, you know, a few months ago about uh, clopenings, and, and you know, all these people say, said, isn't there a law that prohibits employers from having you work until midnight and requiring you to come back at 7 a.m.? Mm -hmm. And there are virtually no laws. You know, uh, in New York with the, you know, the, the show-up law, you know, if mm -hmm. you show up to work, you've got to be paid four hours. That's one of the few states with... Mm -hmm. Any yeah. law on, on hours, yep. and you know there are laws on, on on for minors, but not for for most workers. Then I discovered that the European Union has a directive that basically requires workers have eleven hours between shifts. So like if you work till midnight mm -hmm. at your restaurant, you don't have to come back till eleven a.m. Mm -hmm. And the European Union also has this directive that you know part time workers have to be paid basically at the same rate mm -hmm. as full-time workers. Mm -hmm. Just because you're part-time doesn't mean that they can pay you less yeah. per hour. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, you know, uh, Freelancers Union looks at independent workers, which includes those who, um, some of whom fall into the part-time category and some who might not. Um, and we estimate that there are about 53 million Americans who freelance. And uh, across many, many industries, and many of them being adjuncts and the like, just <laughs> yeah. as you pointed out. And um, couldn't agree more with, with the comment that uh, when you begin to bring those kinds of numbers together, the change that you can make um, by raising awareness within the political spectrum and with, with, uh, with local government especially to begin to even understand what this workforce means. I think it's very it's very easy to just say, to take a look at job numbers and say, oh, there's this many of this kind and there's this many of that, and leave it as, as something as simple as that. And um, you know, I, from our perspective on the independent work side of things, uh, there hasn't even been a, a very um, thorough count of the kind of work people are doing um, in over a decade, just from a simple census perspective, to, to even understand the real complexity of what the workforce looks like and what this workforce might need. And, and I, I think that the, the, the next round of, of uh, public leaders who begin to understand the possibilities in understanding this force of the labor uh, market and, and as a voting population will, and to begin to listen to what kinds of issues like these are coming along, um, will tap into something that really hasn't been tapped into yet. Yeah, our old employer, the last time that we did a national survey in detail about contingent workforce was 2005, mm -hmm. uh, the supplement to the, the, uh, BL, the Bureau of Labor Statistics survey. We haven't 
done a systematic national deep look at this uh, for, as you said, uh, a decade. And uh, the GAO released a, a report uh, this morning uh, looking at some of the data that is available, but mm -hmm. it, one of the main comments in it is how piecemeal uh, that data yeah, is. As a, as a former uh, adjunct uh, professor, I was dismayed uh, by both your, your numbers and also I think the Times, I think it was the Times had, a, had an op-ed this week, if I remember, just comparing uh, uh, college president pay oh, yeah. to average uh, uh, teacher yeah. pay yep. in the gap. So before we turn to the, just the general pushback, as, as Steve called it, and the, or as today called it, and the, um, and the solution, and then we will, we'll, then we'll turn to, um, to a broader discussion. We'd love to include everyone here. I'm just, I'm just curious to think about the, today's, your, your question about um, really almost benefits or really comparing part-time and full-time workers in terms of uh, the supports for them and the interplay with um, with wages and and benefits, and I so I just I ask a single question and see if anyone wants to, to jump in. Um, you know, I'm curious from a uh, from a trend standpoint, if the either rise of freelance workers or entrepreneurial workers or the decline in involuntary. You know, we can talk about whether it's historical numbers, but but take for a second that there's a you know it, it certainly. Many people who are working uh, involuntarily uh, part-time who would like full-time work, a significant number. Um, if, if there's a higher group of, of folks, does that put pressure on uh, overall, does that hold down wages at some level? Uh, because they don't have the same bargaining power as a full-time worker. And if more of them are available, they're getting more money if you just work more hours. But they don't have the same bargaining power in order to push for a higher per hour wage on a say, I'm just curious, I'm thinking about that. And then, you know, there, there's a whole argument within this space where are, if benefits, are benefits becoming a higher percentage of the package for a full-time worker? Some, you know, Fox News will argue that regularly in terms of the ACA, but just in thinking about other benefits, uh, you know, is, if ben are benefits a higher percentage of the overall cost relative to pay, and is that a disincentive for companies to uh, to hire more full-time workers, and so those are those are just that's a little bit wonkish. But I'm just I'm just throwing it out. If, if, if anyone wants to bite on either one of those, uh, to say um, just as I think about the interplay in, in the between part-time and full-time workers, you know, and I'll, I'll bite it. Yeah. Rick, Rick can answer better than I, but I'm, I have a bigger mouth. Um, <laughs> so you know, if there are a lot of involuntary part-time workers, that's all part of softness in the labor market. And the softer labor market, the less bargaining power workers have. Yep to demand more wages. You know, statistics a year or two old from the BLS, the average, average pay for part-time workers is 10.92 an hour. Uh, almost 11 an hour, whereas for full-time workers, it's slightly more than $17 an hour. So it's a 57% difference. The benefits of part-time workers, the whole package is about $2.02. For full-time workers, it's about two and a half times more, about $5. 21% of part-time work, only 21% of part-time workers have are in employer-backed retirement plans, either pen, regular pen, defined benefit or mm -hmm. defined contributions, 401ks or regular pensions, works at 65% for full-timers. And you know, generally, despite what Fox says, you know, the ACA is reducing the burden of cost burden right for there. employers for health insurance. And generally, there's been this big shift by employers to reduce the cost of you know, retirement, yeah. uh, you know, they're trying to force workers to take, you know, 
have fewer fewer sick days and fewer vacation mm -hmm. days. There's players are trying very, 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 very hard, you know, to get away with as much as they can in terms of reducing so-called fringe benefit costs. Rick, anything you want to add? No, that's else? very well done. But I think if you, what are the yeah. three big categories? Yeah. Uh, healthcare costs. Healthcare costs are, are we still having an issue there, but they're stabilized and they're actually coming down a bit. Retirement plans are not expanding. Their contractor Teresa Gilhartucci is here in the audience of one of the national retirement experts. I'm just channeling her. But the coverage is not expanding uh, in retirement. It's shrinking. Uh, employers are moving away from that. Those are two big bundles of employer costs. The, uh, and then all the benefit stuff. Part-time workers don't, aren't entitled to a lot of uh, uh, benefits in the first place. So, uh, I mean, I, my sympathy for the employers is that particularly for a lot of the small ones, they are in this dog-eat-dog -dog business. I, and I guess that I would think the pay gap between part and full-time, I bet if you looked at what sectors they're in, that might explain a lot of it. The part-time workers uh, are heavily concentrated in very low-paying sectors, which depressingly, the jobs that we've created since the Great Recession are low-paying. NELP has done some great work on documenting this. We lead the world in the percent of low-wage jobs that we've created since uh, the recession. And so the, I, I would bet that a lot of that wage differential just has to do with the sectors they're in, retail, protective services, temporary work, uh, and, and a couple other ones. So, but, but I think Steve's yeah, right on on the the numbers. So let's yeah let's let's turn then and then we'll we'll open it up here. Just as my final uh, thought here would be just asking what innovative policy solutions uh, help us meet these challenges. And we've we've talked about scheduling. You talked about some of the uh, legislation at the uh, municipal level, some some state enforcement. We talked about uh, Miller and and and, and others. Um, but but what comes to mind if uh, if you think there's anything that could help move the needle? Uh, on where there are particular areas of challenge. What, would, what, would, what should be, uh, at any level of government, uh, what level of policy could be helpful, or from a practice standpoint, or from an organizing standpoint, where would be the greatest uh, effort, where, where should the greatest societal effort be put? I mean, this is not innovative, no. but, I will, <laughs> but I will say, you know, we did, we did a report a couple weeks ago that 42% of America's workforce makes less than $15 an hour. And which is just a stunning number. And What's that number again? 42%. And so I actually think one of, I mean, this is not that innovative, but you know, one of the key ways that we've raised wages in this country is by raising the wage floor. And we have a wage floor that has so far eroded in real value, it's really contributing to the fact that wages have stagnated or declined and really has contributed to this widening gap between you know, the very wealthy and everybody else. And so I think, and uh, we were talking about that, you know, like this stealth, you know, taking away the ability of localities to pass higher wages that will impact millions of workers in this country, I think is something that we have to organize and fight against. And we've already lost the battle in places that you wouldn't even know about, like Rhode Island. And, you know, it's just happening. And, and I think it's actually a real threat. It's about to happen in Missouri, for example, where there's very active local work to raise wages, but this super red state legislature is about to step in and prohibit them from doing so. Um, so, you know, it's not that innovative, but I just think it's incredibly important. Um, I also, if we could figure out a way to enforce a lot of the laws that are on the books now, and that's one of, one of the real losses we have in unions isn't just a wage thing. There's not yeah. an active, organized presence in the workplace right. that can call out violations of, of basic laws. Uh, 
maybe, uh, I'm too old for it, but there are a lot of smart younger people in the room, figure out some way to mobilize this technology that's being used for scheduling. Is there some way you could report a state, I'm blue sky now, a state labor agency to say, hey, send us your uh, violations, you know, give us a tech app. There's, in the criminal justice world now, there's an app called I'm Getting Arrested, where you just push a button, and if you do it, it takes a, a, a video of what's happening to you, and it uploads it immediately to the cloud, so even if the police break your phone up, uh, there's a record of it. I don't. Maybe there's something like that you could do um, on the labor side if there was a state agency that'd be willing to enforce this stuff. And again, I do think it's going to be states and cities. Washington is totally deadlocked or kind of backpedaling on a lot of this stuff. In trade, I'd rather let's make a deal with the European Union. We've got the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's a terrible idea. Let's make a free trade deal with, with Europe. They got better labor standards than we do, and adjust our standards up. And, and then there's lots of great ideas out there uh, that. Um, Ideas about kind of worker trust funds to do things, community bargaining authorities, uh, expand joint uh, the joint legal liability off the supply chain so you can get at the people who are really running these subcontractors. There's a lot of rich ideas. I think, again, for me, it's, it's going to be cities innovating if their state governments don't stop them. And I think really you can't emphasize that point out. A lot of states are trying to stop this. Kansas City has a minimum wage increase on the ballot for 15, and the Missouri legislature may take away those voters' ability to do it. New York can't do it because of a legacy of the, of the fiscal crisis in the 70s. A lot of New York's home rule powers were removed because we almost went bankrupt. Um, but, but I think sort of try everything, every place at this point. Yeah. So, uh, it's, so uh, you know, the American Legislative Exchange Council, a corporate-backed group, you know, Koch Brothers and others, so, you know, they're the ones behind these efforts in Florida and Rhode Island and other places to prevent counties and cities from passing paid sick days laws, mm -hmm. and then Wisconsin has passed too, mm -hmm. and, and, and local uh, minimum, minimum wage laws. All right, you know, the 5 for 15, again, when it started in November 2012 with 200 workers, you know, we never thought it would begin to achieve what it's achieved. You know, no, it hasn't gotten $15 for fast food workers, but it really has changed the national conversation. Yeah. And whoever thought, you know, 26, 28, 30 months ago, that we'd see, you know, San Francisco and, and Seattle and LA at fifteen dollars, mm -hmm. Chicago at thirteen dollars, mm -hmm. um, and many, many other cities will, I suspect, soon be increasing the minimum wages. So, you know, a lot of people said five for fifteen was silly. The SAU was crazy to be spending millions of dollars on it, but it's, it's really changed the conversation. And you know, the paid sick days movement has been around now eight, ten, eight, ten years, twelve years. And you know it's winning in city by city, and I suspect we'll see a few more states. And at some point, you know, one of the crazy things in America is that you, you poll on the minimum wage, and 80% of people support high minimum wage. 80% of people support uh, paid sick days laws. You know, I imagine if you ask for a law, you know, should we require employers to give two weeks advance notice? You know, it's like duh. You know, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> it really uh, is. Duh. Should people be paid and, you know, when, when they show up? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People people overwhelmingly say yes, but. You know, the power of big money in politics just so sways things that politicians don't want to defy business. And there really is kind of paralysis at the federal level. And until we fix our election situation, our campaign finance situation, which will be extremely, extremely difficult, uh, it's going to be very, very hard to get you know, real pro-worker legislation at the or should I say pro-associate, no, pro-worker <laughs> legislation at the, at the federal level. And that's why you know, the, the cities and states have become the laboratories of experimentations. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I would just add, um, and I think it may impact people differently whether or not they're an employee or an independent contractor, but I think it can happen in both situations, which is being not only paid for when you show up when they suddenly send you home, but being paid for the work that you do. I mean, that seems like such a simple thing. It almost needs to not be said, right? But be, be paid for the work yeah. that you do. And that we hear, um, you know, scandals of, of instances when that's not happened. Um, but it hap- we hear about it a lot at Freelancers yeah. Union um, when you are an independent contractor and uh, you are not necessarily um, being paid wages in terms of an employment contract or employment arrangement, but rather being paid for a service that you have provided and under some form of contract, whether written or understood. And uh, the amount of time our members spend chasing down the payment that they're owed for the work they've already done. So imagine that you are um, a participant in the gig economy, if you want to use that phrase. Uh, You mentioned it earlier. Um, And you have a part of your ongoing work is a little bit of hustle to find your next client and to find your next project, whether that be a short-time employment or a project um, service that you're offering uh, through an independent contractor situation, you're spending a certain amount of your time chasing new clients or confirming and and keeping those relationships so you have repeat work from, from firms that you've worked with in the past, and you're spending an equal or more amount of time chasing down what you were owed. And there are certain industries where this can is you know more common than others, but uh, it's something we see a lot in the in the independent work side of things, which is just let's get paid for the work we've already done. Thanks. Will you please uh, join me in, in thanking Rick and Ann and today and Stephen? Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike. international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.